When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on the show, we're talking to people connected with fields imperiled in one way or another by the Trump administration's agenda. These are the stories of people doing difficult, important jobs, jobs that may get a lot more difficult and a lot more important in the years ahead. Since his election, Trump has been dismissive of the intelligence community, reportedly neglecting briefings and sometimes even insulting the efforts of that community's members. We wanted to understand what it means to actually work in this secretive world. And while we couldn't, for obvious reasons, get an active intelligence officer to talk to us, we did score the next best thing. Our guest this week is Aki Pretz, who worked as an intelligence analyst for the CIA, focusing for much of his time there on issues of counterterrorism. He talked to us about what that job actually involved and about the importance of getting things right when you're working on intelligence issues. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Pretz tells us about Hunted, the reality TV show that he's working on now, bringing some of those skills that he developed during his time with the CIA. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Aki Peretz, and I'm on the television show Hunted, which is on CBS. And what did you do before you were on Hunted? I did a lot of things, but I think for the purposes of this conversation, I used to be an analyst uh, for the Counterterrorism Center at the Central Intelligence Agency. How long were you involved with the CIA, all told? Uh, I was there for about five years. Uh, from 2005 to 2009. Here in, uh, here in Langley, uh, Virginia? Is that? Here in, in the Washington, D.C. metro area. area. <laughs> How much can you tell us about what that work entailed? Uh, what are the kind of limitations there? What analysts at the CIA really do is they try to craft intelligence, finished intelligence, for decision makers, whether it's the president of the United States the director of the CIA, other senior policymakers, and reduce the uncertainty that they need to make decisions. The world is full of noise. There are a lot of things that are out there that are opaque. And what an analyst tries to do at the CIA is take all that noise and boil it down to maybe three, 400 words mm -hmm. uh, for the senior policymaker to digest. Because very busy policymakers don't have time to read a 20-page think tank report. They just won't do it. Can you give us some examples of the kinds of information that you were digesting? Was it 20-page reports from a think tank, or is there other sources that you're, you're working with or juggling? Well, it really depends. For example, let's say you were dealing with Chinese currency use. You don't really need a lot of 
insider knowledge, any classified knowledge. You just have to read all the papers and you have to uh, supplement that with your own base of, of knowledge. That said, if you're working on counterterrorism issues, a lot of that is actually in the classified realm. You're taking a lot of information from a whole bunch of sources. Uh, what the CIA works on is human intelligence called human. That is source material from individuals. That's the bread and butter of the other side of the house, which is the director of operations. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who actually go out there, try to get information from human beings and bring it back and then mix it up into uh, a variety of other uh, all source pieces, which is human intelligence, uh, depending on the situation, maybe be uh, geo-intelligence, which is uh, looking at satellite infrastructure pieces, things from things that orbit or things that fly, uh, and put it all together so that the decision maker, whoever that person may be, can make the best decision on whatever the topic is. When you're looking at the human intelligence coming in and trying to make sense of it, uh, what form does that come into? Is it audio files, transcripts? A lot of the raw intelligence are is just text because it's uh, the case officer going out, meeting with his asset, and having a conversation about X, Y, and Z. And they come back and they write and they it come up. back and they write it up and they they put it into the system and then sometimes that's raw intelligence and it gets turned into a more finished product and then we take that more finished product and make an even more finished product with it. Sometimes, depending on one's level of uh, access, you have access to the raw intelligence, which may or may not be correct. Mm-hmm. If let's say the asset turns over something, then that's that's another way of sort of moving this this the ball forward. So uh, let's say they came up with they stole a laptop from the Iranian nuclear program. It's full of information. How do you get that information with schematics and drawings and all that sort of thing to the relevant individuals? Uh, and that's that's that technology is is such that you can actually send photos through the mail and photos through classified systems. And so, uh, but the vast majority of these are interview notes from assets all over the world. Hmm. It's interesting. It's intelligence is still a very text based industry. Let's put it that way. So it's it, this information, huge amounts of information. The noise is is what's coming from the operation side of the CIA, and then your parsing and processing all of that and trying to figure out which pieces of it to funnel uh, to the relevant policymakers or, or, or other. Yeah. And what matters? What matters to that person? Uh, so, for example, uh, if you're working on some counterterrorism issue, the president of the United States does not care if you take out a VBID cell in eastern Baghdad. It doesn't matter to him because it doesn't really matter from a strategic perspective. Uh, that said, maybe you're working with folks downrange. You're working with a military unit that really needs this information. What's a VB? Vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, okay. a.k.a. a car bomb. It seems like there's a sort of heavy amount of like jargon and stuff. Do you have to process that as you're passing information downstream? It is an incredible amount of jargon. I remember my very first meeting on my first day. Uh, we had a morning meeting, 930 in the morning, and I actually had a, a, a notepad of acronyms that everybody would just use in this 20-minute meeting. And I actually – ran out of space on my little notepad because I had over 40 different acronyms. Most of them made no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, if they said something <laughs> like FBI, of course, we know what FBI is. But everything else, I, I truly didn't know. And so it's a whole different language that one has to master. And it's actually a great way. It, when you deal with intelligence folks, you run into a lot of imposters out there. And the, and the one way you sort of figure out who these people are is have they can they master the verbiage? Hmm. And if they speak it, correctly and they understand the bureaucratic minutiae of where people sit and they also downplay what they actually did 
uh, instead of upplay their heroics. Uh, that's usually a great way to figure out who who the fakes are. So it's the people who know how to talk the talk. They know how to talk the talk, but they also are circumspect about what they did. Yeah. If you said that I was a I was a commando and I did fifteen, I did all these amazing things, and and I'm going to go way out of my way to talk about it. Right. It usually suggests that you probably didn't do it. So you were, I'm guessing, not a commando who did all of these things? Oh, you'd be surprised. (laughs) When you have the body of a seven-year-old, it's uh, (laughs) – no, no, I was not a commando. I was not a a ground guy. So can you talk about what your areas of expertise were? Is that within what you're allowed to say at this point? What I looked at a lot of was a couple years after the invasion. The invasion of Iraq. The invasion of Iraq. Uh, we looked at a lot of what al-Qaeda in Iraq was trying to do, whether they could accomplish their goals of creating a caliphate. People always think about how ISIS created a caliphate back in July 2014, but al-Qaeda in Iraq actually declared a caliphate back in 2006, Hmm. and nobody remembers this because everybody sort of thought it was a joke. Hmm. Uh, So we talked about that. Who's up? Who's down? From a tactical level, can we target any of these people either for incarceration or through more lethal means. Uh, if you remember back in 2005, there was a terrible bombing in Jordan on the 9th of November, 2005. Al-Qaeda in Iraq attacked several Western uh, hotels and killed 60 people, a bunch of kids, attacked a wedding party. Uh, and so what did that mean? Uh, they were some of the foremost users of uh, the internet in terms of creating beheading videos. Uh, so we try to figure out what what did all that mean. Hmm. Beheading videos were really popular, if you want to call it that, from 2004 to about 2006, and they just sort of petered off. So why did they stop doing it? They just stopped. So all these things which matter to the warfighter, to the policymaker, I and my colleagues tried to put this together uh, to the best of our ability. There's a heavy interpretive mm-hmm. component. Absolutely. There's really a difference between just information and intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, General Hayden, who was the head of uh, CIA a decade ago, and he's also the head of NSA, he had this great quote where he says, if it's just facts, it ain't intelligence. Mm -hmm. So facts don't mean anything unto themselves. It's the analysis of the facts to put them in some sort of proper context. How did you get involved with intelligence work in the first place? I was working in 2004 uh, for a political campaign, and almost on a lark, I actually applied online, as does basically everybody uh, nowadays. Mm-hmm. And political campaign, well, we didn't win. <laughs> and then funny thing was I had certain qualifications, which the CIA really was looking for at the time. And so we lost. And then a couple of days later, I got the job. What was behind that win? What, was, what, was, what drove you in that moment to make that decision? One of the things was is that I was extremely interested in national security. If you are interested in national security you could, and in the United States, you can take several roads. Uh, one is join the military. One is to work at, let's say, the State Department, uh, work on the Hill on foreign policy, national security issues. And one of them is really to go in the intelligence community. And I just so happened to have a certain set of skills uh, <laughs> that that uh, CIA was looking for. Uh-huh. And it I teach a class at American University uh, where I have a lot of grad students who come in and they want to talk about about uh, intelligence stuff and, and intelligence community, national security. And I and I know a fair number of them actually apply to CIA and other intelligence uh, 
agencies. And I always ask them, why do you want to do this? And the answers always kind of boil down to, I want to serve my country and it looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's basically the choice I made. I want to serve my country and it looks pretty cool. Was it pretty cool? It was pretty cool for a while. Like any job, you 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 are, you are opened up to a a world that you don't you only think you understand, but you don't really understand at all. A lot of it's humdrum, sitting in front of a computer. But sometimes you get the opportunity to do some really cool stuff, which you would never ever do, working on the hill, working in a think tank, uh, and that's and those are those are experiences that you can only have working in very very specific parts of the U.S. government. What were your qualifications? Did you? I have a master's in China studies. Okay. And they were looking for folks with that kind of background. Mm-hmm. Um, and over half of the CIA's workforce was actually hired after 9-11. And so at the time, there was this huge effort to plus up the workforce. So I was the beneficiary of this post-9-11 surge, if you will, mm-hmm. in hiring. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you ended up also working in Iraq. Had you also studied any of that in advance? I had to learn a lot of that stuff on the job. The interesting thing is once you get into the system, it's not really about what you know. It's about how you present the material. It's a different language. It's an esoteric way of putting information together. And so obviously I did not come in as a counterterrorism specialist. Mm -hmm. The opportunity was there. This was now... 05, late 05. And the war, if you remember, was not going very well. And so there was a there's a call for anybody who wants to do Iraq or counterterrorism uh, to go and do it. And I seemed like an interesting thing to do because it was the most important foreign policy, national security issue at the time. And uh, I took the chance. Were there ever times when you, you know, got a request from on high that said, mm-hmm. we need this analysis from you tomorrow? Immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Those short term turnarounds were always coming in. And increasingly, if you look over the last 20 years or so, those kinds of short-term, short-fuse projects uh, became the stuff that actually made up a lot of what CIA really did. There's this criticism that CIA does a lot of short-term projects to the detriment of doing long-term thought pieces. And I don't know whether that's really CIA's fault because CIA is only trying to figure out what their customers actually want. So if they want what's going to happen in Iraq in the next month or this parliamentary decision, what does this all mean versus we want to know things that are 10 years out. Those are two different issues. And anyways, who knows what's going to happen in 10 years? There's this apocryphal statement, I think in the 60s, where senior policymakers wanted, what are Soviet air defenses going to be like over the next 10 years? So who knows knows what that's going to be? Hmm. So I guess who knows how the technology will develop. The technology, ten years. Well, what's going to happen in ten years? International relationships. Yeah. No idea, but that's what the customer wanted, and so I believe the uh, CIA turned out a piece about this is where we think Soviet air defenses are going to be in the next ten years, even though it was a total, total guess. But you're basically writing science fiction at that point. Essentially, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen in ten years. Nobody does, uh, and so we, you can guess, but who? Somebody's going to go back in ten years and say, "Well, you got this wrong." Yep, we got it wrong. <laughs> You've been listening to former intelligence analyst Aki Pretz. After this brief break, he talks about office culture at the CIA, including its surprisingly well-appointed cafeteria. What's 
the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Can you walk us through what maybe a typical day was like to the extent that there was such a thing? Uh, Set the scene first. Did you work out of an office? Yeah, we worked in an office. Uh, We worked in a – at the time, they were updating a lot of our cubicles. And so we went from kind of an 80s-style cubicle to a uh, more modern cubicle. And what that really meant was our cubes were actually smaller than they should have been. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. People, is there, are there cubicles full of books, papers? It really sort of depends on the individual. Some, I had a lot of books in my cube. So drive to work, get up. Uh, wearing a suit? Wearing a, sometimes wearing a suit. It's like business, CIA is business casual? A lot of it's business casual unless you actually had a real meeting to go to with mm-hmm. somebody important. Uh, I think most of the men kept a suit and tie in a closet somewhere mm-hmm. uh, just in case. But it's buttoned up and not too buttoned up. We would have a morning meeting. We'd very quickly look through the traffic. Something when you say our, traffic, that's incoming, incoming intelligence. Incoming intelligence. And we would try to figure out what the most important issue was on their specific topic. You'd do a very quick search. you talk to your boss and your other colleagues about developments over the last 24 hours or 12 hours, or depending on when you came in. Uh, and then we would work on projects, with, whether we had a short turnaround piece that had to go out whether we had a longer piece going out, um, there was coffee involved, a lot of chit-chat with your colleagues because you're sharing information. But remember, it's, you see these people every day, and so you develop a rapport. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. Um, CIA has, I think, the best cafeteria in the federal government personally. Really? Yeah, it's actually quite good. Uh, at headquarters, there's a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. There's a Dunkin' Donuts. It's a very well-apportioned food delivery service. What was your favorite food? Uh, to to, oh, to get there. I don't know. They had a great salad bar. It was always very fresh and everything was pretty good. You had your sort of standard sort of mall food like Panda Express or Sbarro's or whatever. And Would the, the service people working in the cafeteria have to do some kind of security clearance? Oh, absolutely. Every single person in the, bil- in the building has a security clearance. <laughs> uh, so even if you were the person, the cashier lady, you'd be checked because you're interacting with people. A lot of people who are undercover right. every day. 
<laughs> so uh, good cafeteria, but also a lot of meetings. Is that good, bad? How were those meetings? A lot of meetings. Every bureaucracy loves meetings. And obviously, it depends on what you're working on, but it's either working with your colleagues, it, whether it's arguing with other offices over a specific issue. So, for example, let's say you were working on Russian missile technology. The Russia people would actually have to talk to the missile people and then come to a conclusion. Each group has their own peculiarities about how to look at the data because they're all individuals. And then you would sort of have to hash something out and then and that's your your paper. A negative way of looking at this is saying that you're coming up with lowest common denominator intelligence. A better way that the CIA thinks about this is that this is sort of like a crash peer review way to look at intelligence. And so you know that you're covering all the bases. And these meetings get very, very contentious at some points. People just don't agree. And if you've been working on a topic for a long time, your ideas are very uh, pretty set. One of the things that intelligence analysts are on guard for is confirmation bias. But it's easy to say. It's really tough to do, to challenge your own assumptions about a lot of things. And so if you have a very specific way that, uh, you know, ISIS is going to definitely take this uh, strategy, uh, you will fight to the death, uh, bureaucratic death, uh, to make to make sure that your voice is heard. Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody else, some young person would actually say, no, I don't really believe that. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been in those situations on both sides where I've had to defend my idea and challenge somebody else's long preconceived notion about the way things are. What is the tone like otherwise? I mean, is it usually conversational and open or, or do people get, get combative uh, easily? It depends on the topic. People are people and some people are open to criticism and other people are not. And there's an old joke that, that how can you tell an introverted analyst from an extrovert? And the introverted analyst looks at his own shoes when he talks to you. The extrovert, it, your shoes when you talk to him. <laughs> so uh, there's, this, there's this idea that, that uh, analysts are kind of, you know, introverted kind of folks who, who, who are very persnickety about their own s specific topic. Are the operations people, is there, is there a stereotype for the way that they, uh, their personality type? Well, it takes all kinds of people. A lot of these people, well, the operations folks, and they're collecting human intelligences, you're actually getting people to betray their own country mm -hmm. for the United States of America. And that requires a certain type of individual who can persuade a government official in another country to, to help the United States. Um, stealing secrets is the point of CIA. And that requires personnel who are willing to do that. Those who are analysts don't actually have to get their hands dirty. Uh, and so there is a definite difference of personality when, when it comes to uh, those sides of the house. It doesn't mean that there isn't, there isn't back and forth. Some analysts become operators, some operators become analysts, and there is at the end of the day, you're still working with the same organizations and, and over, people are coming in, they get to know each other a lot better than before. Uh, but there's still a, a cultural difference between the two sides. Did you hang out with those kind of people? Oh, sure. Um, folks who were in the, it's now called the director of operations, the DO. Uh, yeah, a lot of these guys were my friends and uh, I hope they weren't trying to uh, get me to do things, but- Steal your secrets. 
steal my secrets. Yeah, I, I don't know that I had really any secrets <laughs> to steal. But uh, some people in the operation sides, most of these guys are great, but sometimes you just can't turn it off. Uh, and uh, and that's that's just the nature of the job. And that's okay. They live a life that is much more sequestered than than my life. I could always, even though it was inadvisable, I was always an overt employee. So push came to shove. I could say that I work for the CIA. I uh, those those folks who were covert uh, would say something else. Uh, they would they would be allowed to lie essentially to to a lot of people. Not that lying is if you if if you're at a bar and you meet somebody and you say, well, I work for XYZ company, that's not illegal. But um, you have to be much more circumspect. You have to be much more careful about what you do and what you say uh, in your daily life. How much of your time would you spend in these meetings or, or in these kinds of conversations? Uh, hopefully, you wouldn't spend too much time because you got it right. Uh, that's how you got promoted. But no man is an island, and so you always had to work with your colleagues. CIA products don't have your name on them. They are a corporate product. And so you can turn out a thousand pieces and nobody would ever know that you actually wrote it because you write a piece, it goes to your boss, it goes to his supervisor, it would go to a... Are they rewriting it as as Yeah, they are editing, re-editing and editing your piece. And it takes hours to go through, if not weeks, because everybody wants to make sure that that you are right. Or everybody want to make sure that you are not wrong because nobody wants to be wrong. Because once you write it, once the CIA writes something, it's there forever in black and white. CIA is an organization that needs to trade on truth-telling at the end of the day. The director of central intelligence, Richard Helms, actually once said, if we are not believed, we have no purpose. And if CIA is a kind of place that does not make truth and the knowledge of truth to be its bread and butter, then it has no purpose. Is there any room when you're writing these these documents mm-hmm. uh, that you know will be edited, but that you also know will be so important for promotion, mm-hmm. uh, just for, for your general presumably status within the agency as sure. a whole? Is there any room there for style, for, for kind of personal voice, or is it just that corporate? For panache? Yeah. The, no, there's no panache in intelligence writing. They CIA turns out a style guide uh, every so often, uh, every five years, and you can actually see this online if you'd like. Uh, the 2011 version is 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 on the web, and you can see that you scrape out every single adverb, adjective. <laughs> it is extremely dry writing, and the idea is that adjectives and adverbs create doubt mm. in people's minds about what something. So if you say an important meeting meet here is like, why is it an important meeting or a very important meeting or he strongly suggested so in mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. Well, how do we define strongly? Hmm. Actually, if you read intelligence work from the 60s and the CIA has been doing great work about declassifying things from the uh, PDBs from the 60s, from the 70s. What, sorry, what's a PDB? Oh, I'm sorry. A presidential daily brief. So things that went uh, – PDB started in 1964 with President Johnson. They, they had something for President Kennedy, the the – Pickle, uh, which is the president's PICL. I don't remember. It's called the Pickle. <laughs> uh, and then the PDB basically started in October two th- in 1964. And then it's been ongoing ever since. 
if you actually read what the PDB was for Johnson, for Nixon, and, and so forth, they were much looser way in the 60s. And they use a lot of adverbs and a lot of weird stuff that got in. And things that the CIA wrote 50 years ago would never fly today. I think there was something about some sort of border flare-up between Chile and Argentina. And it's like, Latin tempers flared, blah, 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 blah. It's like, who would write like that? I mean, hmm. that's kind of nuts. What, does, what, does, what do Latin tempers mean anyways? Uh, and, this, and this piece of paper went to the president saying, because of some random thing that happened on the border of, between Chile and Argentina, is because of Latin tempers. Hmm. Um, so this, this newer, drier style, though, is, mm-hmm. is about maintaining that sense of objectivity. Uh, of clarity of, of just sort mm-hmm. of factual interpretation. Right. Uh, it's a clarity of prose. It's the the ability to present facts as best as one can or as best as the bureaucracy can. Uh, obviously, when you brief a senior person, you can actually talk about things and not in a dry manner. But But the written product tries to be as accurate and as factual as possible. And that sometimes leads to pretty boring reading, to be honest. But also, it sounds like vis-a-vis that 60s mm-hmm. uh, uh, anecdote that you offered, maybe freer now of, of stereotypes and, oh, and such. I hope so. Yeah. I, it'd be interesting to read what is written today in 50 years to see whether the tropes we use about the Middle East, about Asia, are seen as, as hopelessly archaic as we look at some of these things in the 60s and say, mm-hmm. well, this is the way it was. What were the uh, what were the hours like? Was it a nine to five job, or were you always on call? It was actually, and I worked during the war and the occupation. Oftentimes, it was a nine to five job. It was actually quite strange. You know, you still could go home at a reasonable hour and have dinner at home. Uh, that said, if you were working on some major project or something that was going up to the president or some senior policymaker in the future, you probably stayed a long time at work because if it was going into the presidential daily brief the next morning, you had to go through this editing process. And so you would have to spend more time at work. One of the things, and I think they may have changed it around a little bit uh, recently, is that you have briefers who go out to talk to the president, talk to the vice president, talk to other folks. They have these meetings first thing in the morning. And these briefers are very smart people, capable individuals, but they don't know the intricacies of everything that goes into the the PDB, uh, they might have to master eight different topics over the course of the night. So they are they get there extremely early in the morning, let's say 4.30 in the morning, uh, so they can understand this stuff, ingest all the information, and then go out and brief their principles at, let's say, 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so if you had a particularly important piece, you could actually show up at 4 in the morning to brief the briefers mm-hmm. on this specific topic. And you might do that all the time, or you may not do it at all. Did it that happen much for you? It happened every so often. I didn't really like getting up at four in the morning, but uh, I felt that my topics were important enough to to go in and say, look, this is a complicated issue full of individuals who, who you may not master. This is the reason why so-and-so is important, and this mm-hmm. is the relationship. It's, it's just to sort of talk through your topic with the briefer themselves so they would adequately and accurately explain to their to their superiors what, sure. what exactly happened. Yeah, because you want to make sure that – you people get to understand right. all of the stuff that you've been struggling to understand. I right. Guess. And yeah. it's complicated. And these people are very sharp people. And I think if the American people knew how thoughtful and how interesting and creative these people are on a daily basis, I think people would be pretty proud of the intelligence community. 
mm. in general. It doesn't mean that there weren't Claudes uh, who also got into the system because it's a bureaucracy and it happens. But generally, I think the caliber of individual that you meet on a day, on an individual basis is a is a pretty hmm. good one. Did you ever write anything that you knew made it into the uh, presidential daily briefing book? Oh, sure. I, I wrote a lot of stuff that, that got into the, the PDB. What was that like? What did that feel like to, to have written something that that was sitting there beside all of this other stuff of national and international importance? It's a great feeling. It's a great feeling to know that your piece got to the president and other really important individuals, and maybe they made a choice based on your information. You've been listening to Aki Peretz. In a minute, he talks about what it's like to work in a covert environment, and he also shares some thoughts about Donald Trump. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. One of the things that we've been talking around mm -hmm. is the the necessary fact of secrecy. I, were the kind of demands of secrecy ever an issue for communication within the agency itself? Uh, is Are there ever times when you can't talk to your coworkers about what you're working on? Sure. Different analysts have different levels of security based on their need. So if you worked on some very secret squirrel issue, you couldn't tell your colleagues about what you were working on. You said, sorry, just to be clear, you said secret squirrel. Is that, secret is squirrel, it, yeah, is that yeah. a technical that, that term? That is the technical term. No, it's not. So let me give you an example. In 2005, when all this stuff started coming out in, in the press about black sites mm -hmm. and waterboarding and a lot of the other, the other issues that sort of came to dominate the intelligence discourse over the last decade, I personally learned about it in the press. Mm. And... I believe one of these major things that came out, I remember reading it in the paper, sitting at my desk, and I turned to my colleague who was sort of sitting in a cube next to me and said, is this happening? And she was a 30-plus year veteran of the agency, and she's been around since the Soviet era. And she goes, I have no idea. Hmm. We didn't know because yes. we didn't work on it. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because it shows that there is a compartmentalization that actually happens, uh, but it's also it's a little strange. It's a it's a strange it's a strange thing not to know what is truth and what is not. Hmm. And Especially you can't, and in you can't, an organization and, that's all about about truth, truth, but also secrecy. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to always walk that fine line. And you, even if I had friends who worked on one of those topics, they couldn't tell me because I wasn't read into the whatever the compartmentalized uh, project it was. Hmm. So um, 
you know, I'm sure there are some very uh, secret things that are happening that 99% of the agency workforce has no idea what's going on. And that's the way you kind of want it because people talk. Sure. What about outside of the agency when you were working there? Was it weird to, say, go to a bar with your friends and then not really be able to talk about what you'd been working on that day? Yeah, it's really f- strange. One of the, one in of DC, the, that's all anyone talks about. That's, in that's all what any, everybody loves talking about work. And so, if you run into a bunch of people who are really s- not very uh, uh, comfortable about talking about what they do for a living, uh, that's maybe a tell. But the what inter- was that like the for you? about the, the CIA? And again, uh, there are a lot of young people who work for the CIA. Young, smart, dynamic individuals, and you work. You you actually come to a point where. You can only talk about work with these people because they are clear to talk about these issues. And then you actually hang out with a lot of these people and it becomes a, a very insular group. And, and it's tough sometimes for, for folks in the, in the agency to have a lot of outside friends. You have to actually make, go out of your way to actually make a lot of friends. In fact, I remember I was at a, I was at a party years ago. Uh, you know, there were, let's say, 50 people. I knew every single one of the people in that, in that room. Hmm. What also, the funny thing is, is, is you go to events or parties where uh, people don't know your background, and so they start spouting off about some foreign policy issue, and you you know who works where, but they don't. Hmm. So, for example, I was at a at a thing, and this one Hill staffer went on and on and on about Pakistan and about how so and so the president at the time was something bad's going to happen to him. And what she didn't realize is that she was surrounded by agency officers who interacted with the Pakistanis and interacted with, with senior folks and read the intelligence. And we all just sort of said, oh, that's really interesting. Tell us more. Oh, very interesting. You're, you're very smart. <laughs> <laughs> Do moments like that ever make you feel like a spy? Oh, uh, well, there's no such thing as a spy, really. Um, DC's a funny place. What What other place... Can you interact with people who work for intelligence service and also uh, interact with anybody else under the sun? Mm. Um, I think once you get out of D.C., people are blown away by CIA efforts, both positive and negative, because you know, CIA in the past has done some kind of shady things. Um, I had a friend of mine who ran for, for Congress in 2014. He's a former agency, agency guy. And people would come up to him and say, like, do you have a joystick on your desk and you can drone people, you know, just, just for fun? Is that, <laughs> is that how it works? I mean, the level of understanding of what the intelligence community is and specifically what the CIA does. Just to be clear, he presumably did not he, have a he did joystick not. Yes, on yes, his yes, desk. Yes, I, I have to say that as far as I know, <laughs> he did not have a joystick where he could just drone people for fun and for profit on Thursdays. Uh, uh, so he, yeah, he did not do that. <laughs> he was just an analyst. But but it's it's interesting how movies and mass media have shaped the idea of what the intelligence community is, and so you have a lot of movies that are completely fabulous, uh, but it's really not what what the reality of the world is. Mm-hmm. Presumably, the secrecy has something to to do with that. This sure. this the fact that we can't know we can't know, happening. and it's spicy, and there are. It's funny people always refer to like James Bond, even though James Bond is a British. Uh, British MI5. civil service employee, um, if we want to call it for SIS. Uh, but people sort of talk about, oh, you're, you're, 
you're a James Bond kind of guy. No, no, no. It's like, no, it's not really like that's the case. Art imitates life and life imitates art. So people talk about James Bond even within the system and they love playing that music. Uh, and they talk about uh, a generation ago, people would always talk about Hunt for Red October because the Jack Ryan character was a CIA analyst. And as the movies and the books got more fantastic, then it, it didn't really uh, make much sense. But if you remember in Hunt for Red October, he's just like this guy who doesn't really, you know, he writes books, even though nobody really writes books for the CIA. But uh, he, he's, he's basically a writer who happens to work for the agency. Um, he didn't, he was not an, uh, a guy who actually went out and did action stuff. And so when he was put in, when Jack Ryan was put in this situation, you know, he has to get on the sub and he has to talk to all these folks and run away from the Soviets or whatever. Uh, he's just like, I have no idea what I'm doing now. Obviously it's a movie. It's not real, but uh, closer to reality than, than uh, slightly closer to reality. <laughs> you speak, spoke a lot about the customer focus of mm -hmm. what analysts do at the CIA, that, you, that you're attentive to the needs of the interests of your audience, mm -hmm. uh, the people that you're writing for. And of course, you know, the the number one person that you all are would have would be writing for at any given time, I assume, is is going to be the president. Mm -hmm. um, Donald Trump, as as we know, has in recent weeks been uh, dismissive, sometimes aggressively so, mm -hmm. about the efforts of uh the intelligence community uh, and the CIA. What do you make of his tone? Is that does that likely to just lead the CIA to have to change the sorts of information that it provides? I think it's too early to tell. Right now, we're in this feeling out period where the CIA, the analysts, the intelligence community writ large is trying to determine its place in the firmament of the US government with uh, a new president in charge. Will Donald Trump actually listen to the CIA or the intelligence community generally about things that really matter? It's unclear. It's also unclear, how does he consume information? Supposedly he watches TV all the time. He's on Twitter, obviously. From what people have said, he gets easily bored and he's kind of scattered in his and in the way he approaches things. And so would a 400 word piece of paper on some topic be too much? Would it be better for briefers to come in and just speak to him? And especially on topics that he has not only has no knowledge in, but also no experience in. So for example, supposedly he has taken an interest in what's going on in North Korea. He doesn't have any strong opinions about it, and so therefore you can both educate and provide uh, analysis that he would actually be receptive to. Now, compare that to uh, what appears to be his very strong views about Russia. It's going to be very difficult for anybody to change anybody's mind if they have very strong views on a specific topic. And uh, if he, if he, if if a customer or if anybody really has a very strong view on a specific topic. How do you change that person's mind if that view is incorrect or perceived as incorrect? Confirmation bias works in all places. If the president or senior policymakers are disinterested or uninterested in your analysis, maybe you're wrong. But also, maybe you're right, and it's very difficult to sort of puncture that the preconceived notions of, of what the, the, the customer wants. So if 
Donald Trump has very strong opinions about Russia, about Vladimir Putin, uh, about their cyber capabilities or lack thereof, it's going to be very difficult to change his mind. In fact, it's the, one of the most difficult things to do to, for anybody is to actively get a person with very strong opinions to actually change their viewpoint. Uh, you don't have to be in the CIA to figure this out. Uh, try to get your girlfriend or whatever to change, like fundamentally change a thing that she cares about. Uh, and it's going to be next to impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What What's life like for you after the agency? It's interesting. I After the agency, I went to a number of think tanks uh, in at, at Harvard and also here in D.C. Uh, uh, I get to write. One of the things is that you are basically anonymous at the agency because you don't want to broadcast the fact that you are employed uh, at this organization. And so when you leave, it feels like a giant you get your you get your life back and you can write, you don't have to check in with anybody. You can travel to other countries without checking in with people. Your level of paranoia actually goes way down uh, because when you're working the agency, there's this feeling that that a lot of folks are out to get you, which is true because other intelligence services are actually trying to potentially recruit you to, to get you to cough up information. In this world of social media, we give out so much more personal information now than we ever did maybe 15 years ago. Uh, and so hostile intelligence services are collecting that information. But once you're out, it doesn't really matter that much because you have nothing to provide. So... Um, I would actually suggest to anybody listening uh, who actually works at the agency and are thinking sort of what are my next steps, you could, th there are a lot of options out there. But the thing about CIA is that it does give you opportunities that you can't really get anywhere else um, to travel, to brief, to, to do a lot of things. Uh, sometimes if you're lucky, you're really at the pointy edge of the national security spear here in the United States, and I have experiences, which I can't really talk about, which cannot be replicated anywhere else. It also, probably one of the best things about the CIA is a sense of mission. You know why you're doing something very specifically, and you are oftentimes aware that what you're doing matters. Even if it doesn't, really, it, you feel like it matters, and that sense of mission, that sense of purpose is something that a lot of people are missing in their lives. And CIA, because of its unique space in the in this country, uh, provides that in spades. Do you feel like you made the world better? Hmm. I I hope I did. I don't know. I I gave it. I feel like I gave it a a good shot, and it wasn't the career for me, and that's okay. But I feel like I did my job to the best of my ability, given restrictions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan, and I prefer my martinis stirred, not shaken. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com, and we read those emails. And whenever we can, we also take suggestions. So if you have thoughts about people we should cover in this series, uh, we'd welcome that. And, and we would love it too, if you, especially if you like the show, if you would rate and review it on iTunes. It makes a big difference for us. You can listen, of course, to past episodes at slate.com slash working. 
If you are interested in Hunted, the reality show on which Peretz uh, demonstrates some of those skills that he acquired during his time at the CIA, it airs on CBS on Wednesday nights. We'd also encourage you to hunt down Aki's book, which is called Find, Fix, Finish. And you can learn there a little bit more about his time at the CIA. Uh, Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper, who would look great in a tux if he owned one. Thanks to Joe Weisberg for some assistance with this episode, and special thanks to Fuzz Hogan, who connected us with Aki Peretz. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, the person most likely in my own life to actually be a spy, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. Andy Bowers.